this week on the Backtable Podcast. I just think that it's vital for our trainees to have colleagues that don't all look like each other. Our residents had a big push for it. There's just so much you can learn from somebody else's unique individual experience. And you can only do that if you have a group of people that have different and unique experiences. And some of that stems from their gender and racial and ethnic identities. And we can't just discount that. It's important and it helps us be better doctors. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric ENT, and today I have a very special guest for a very important topic. I have Dr. Tamara Watts. She's a surgeon scientist in otolaryngology and head and neck surgery at Duke University. She obtained her MD and PhD at the University of Maryland and completed her residency in otolaryngology at the Medical College of Georgia, followed by a head and neck oncology and microvascular reconstructive fellowship at Oregon Health Sciences. Dr. Watts is here today to talk about the American Head and Neck Society Scholarship for Underrepresented Minority Medical Students. Welcome to the show, Tamara. How are you? I'm great, Gopi. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Thank you for coming on. Can you first tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? Sure. I am right now, as you said, at Duke University, and I wear a few hats in that space. The vast majority of my career, I've been a clinician scientist, which for me means I split my time between a basic science translational research laboratory where we're focused on studying the tumor microenvironment with respect to how mesenchymal stem cells and stromal cells contribute to treatment resistance. And recently, the lab has started to focus on biologic variables that may underlie some of the racial disparities we see in head and neck cancer. I spend about another 30% of my time in the clinic and in the OR taking care of head and neck cancer patients. And recently, I was appointed as the inaugural Associate Director of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion for the Duke Cancer Institute. Congratulations. Thank you. I have really (laughs) enjoyed that work, or I am really enjoying that work. Um, It was unexpected and um, looking forward to designing programs for the oncology workforce globally within the Duke Cancer Institute. That's awesome. So let's get into it. Um, Our topic today is about diversity, equity, inclusion. Tell us a little bit about what that means to you and, you know, why is it important in the field of medicine? So it's three simple words that are really complex to put a singular definition around it, right? So I think diversity, equity, and inclusion are values, values that as an individual, I seek to have in my life personally and professionally and within the organization that I spend the vast majority of my time, I'd like to see that those are values and a culture that the institution is trying to uphold and implement. So first, I think about equity, right? As I am a part of a larger workforce, I want myself and my colleagues to uh, be in an environment that's, that's fair, right? That's where we are all trying to achieve our goals and specific example, you know, promotion, that the promotion practices and tenure practices are the same for men, women, minorities, that we are in an environment where we feel valued. And I can kind of think about that when I look at my residency application from back in the day. One of the things I was concerned about 
was, can I get my application through the door and not be limited or be put in a box because of the race that I identify with? So I purposely didn't put a picture on my application. It wasn't a requirement. I wanted to make sure that I could get my foot in the door, which I think a lot of us are looking for. I think when we talk about taking care of our patients, diversity of thought, diversity is important. It provides them with the sense that their physician may be able to empathize with them in a way that another physician may not from a different racial or gender background. And then I also think about inclusion, right, that we are making sure that we invite everybody to the table, right? So I think there's some landscapes and some lenses where D, E, and I seems to be associated with excluding individuals as opposed to including everybody and making sure there's a space for everybody, regardless of their background, um, and to create an environment that's belonging. And then I was also thinking about this from the prospect I've interviewed medical students for 13 years and always find it very interesting when the faculty get back together, right, to discuss a particular applicant, how that applicant shows up in different spaces, allow, and then when faculty talk about that, you get a different perspective or more global, holistic perspective, I think, of the applicant, because you get to hear through the lens of the various identities that we show up with, how we receive that individual. I think it's helpful. Yeah. I, you know, you touched on the last word belonging, the B, which is, I think, a newer letter, if you will. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, belonging? You know, I can't say that I have a, a ton of experience in that space other than as I've been preparing documents for the upcoming National Cancer Institute site visit and, and the plan to enhance diversity for the Cancer Institute and looking at surveys. Belonging seems to be a little bit of a area where a lot of work can be done. I think we get here and we're doing the work and trying to foster those environments, I think, is important and is going to be a challenge moving forward. I wish I had a great answer for that. I know what it feels like to not feel like I belong, right? But then how do you have those conversations that then move in a direction that fosters that sense. I think one of the things we're doing at Duke, we have a lot of affinity groups that are coming together and the health system has put some financial resource behind that. And so finding peers and mentors in a space that have a common characteristic or common goal that you as an individual most identify with begins to foster that maybe in a micro environment that hopefully we can grow into a more global context. Yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, intentionality associated with inclusion and equity, you know, with DEIB. It, it's got to be something I think that's intentional. It's got to be constantly on our minds until it becomes second nature. It's very easy to come up with something that's a one-time thing. But if it's not a consistent value set that's put into action, it's kind of temporary and you don't create the belonging or fostering of that culture. And, and then it's hard to translate that to a workforce and to make the system better, to make our patient outcomes better. Tell me in terms of underrepresented minority, what groups of students does that include? So there are several definitions that you can use. I think the one that we've adopted so I serve on the diversity service for the American Head and Neck Society. So we have adopted the NIH's definition, which includes racial demographics such as, you know, Black, African-American, Hispanic, Latino, Native Alaskan, Pacific Islander. But it also accounts for individuals whose backgrounds are different. And so 
Those could be individuals that they define as a disadvantaged background, including growing up in the foster care system, being homeless. Rurality is also considered in that, disabilities. So we try to use the broadest definition that we can and then embrace what, you know, the NIH has put forth on its websites. We're, you know, here to talk specifically about the uh, HNS or the American Head Neck Society's scholarship for underrepresented minority students. Can you tell us a little bit about the scholarship? Yeah, we have two awesome opportunities available. The first one was put forth from a generous donation by the Myers family. So I think all of us in otolaryngology know Dr. Eugene Myers from the University of Pittsburgh. I still look at my Myers operative atlas for cases that come up that maybe I haven't seen in a little bit of time. So the Myers family put forth an endowment that allows for a summer traveling fellowship. Ideally, it's suited for a first-year medical student, a second-year medical student who has their summertime free. And the goal really is to provide financial support and exposure to head, neck, surgery specifically in otolaryngology. And then the second award, which we're really excited to announce, which will be accepting applications in the coming weeks, is in honor of Dr. Eddie Mendez. So Dr. Mendez is a translational researcher at the University of Washington in Seattle. And he ran a basic science laboratory interested in functional genomics and biomarkers in oral cancers. And unfortunately, he passed away at the age of 45 from cancer. And the American Head and Neck Society, with generous donations from the community and members, has now a new program. This is a $10,000 award. It'll be administered every other year with the goal of providing financial support and mentorship for students who are interested in having a one-year exposure in head and neck cancer research. And so that student would take a year off and work with a mentor in the $10,000 they could use to help purchase supplies for some of the laboratory experiments and to defray costs. We want both students to come to the combined otolaryngology section meeting where the AHS meets. We want them to have opportunities to present their work on the national level. And much like I think about it like real estate, right? If location, location, location is the tenant for a good Real estate investment, I think for our young people, it's all about exposure, exposure, exposure. And the more we can expose them to, they can find a love of otolaryngology and a specialty that a lot of us don't know anything about before we even get to medical school. And what's the application process like? Is it an essay or specifically for the research year? Is there a project that they have to come up with? How does somebody apply and what do they need to have a salt? Like, what are you looking for in an application? So we're looking for the most important thing is a student who has identified a mentor and that they have a plan about how to utilize that time so it's productive. So we're not asking a medical student to come in with a, you know, NIH our style grant with specific aims and a hypothesis they're interested in testing. We're looking for them to explain to us how they want to use this year. And we're looking for the mentor to provide a letter that kind of supports how they plan to work with this student. So I can speak personally, having done a PhD, that mentorship in the laboratory is critical for the success of the student at any stage. And that probably will be very instrumental in how we choose. Unfortunately, I can't give you 
since we're going to go through our first round of applications, sort of what students are coming up with. But those are the things. So we're interested in your brief sort of resume, CV, a personal statement that includes how you're going to utilize your time and your mentor and your mentor to provide a bio sketch of his or her work. And we are providing on the AHS website mentors who, ha- who have said, hey, I am available. So you could see my bio sketch would be on the website. You can see the kind of work that I'm doing. And then I've shown that I'm committed to creating an environment that's for your success and training. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was thinking that might be a major hurdle as an applicant is finding the mentor because you know, one, you may or may not know the department well. You may come from a program that doesn't have its own department. And so making those connections and sending I don't cold emails or, you know, whatnot could probably be pretty difficult too. But at least having like a list of invested, interested mentors on the website, I'm sure that that's huge because it also, you have buy-in from both sides. You need both parties, the applicant, as well as somebody that believes in it and wants the student and their project to succeed and, and see a, a larger benefit from it. Do you have any tips for students who may be wanting to reach out to a mentor in terms of how to make that connection or how to make that introduction or, or anything like that? So I have a medical student in my laboratory right now who took it upon herself to email me, introduce herself, say, this is what I'm interested in. We started working together on a review paper, and she showed such initiative that it was easy for me to welcome her into that space. There are several otolaryngology programs across the country that have training grants available and doing some ground research to see what those institutions are. So as an example, we have a R25 program funded through the NIH. And that allows us to select two medical students each year to provide a stipend support for them to work in any area of research in otolaryngology. And that is how uh, this particular medical student, we were able to support her to spend a year in the lab. You know, you can speak to this. I feel like our colleagues are all pretty warm and welcoming. And when students reach out, for the most part, they respond and, and are favorable for folks coming to work with them. We don't want this to be a financial hardship. So we're hoping that folks can identify local mentors at their institutions. But the medical student in my lab, to your point, is at a new medical school with no otolaryngology home program. And this was one of the ways that she wanted to gain exposure to the specialty that she hopes to pursue. And I was very open and receptive to that. And she took the initiative. I think a lot of us are looking for you to take the initiative. I always say, with respect to mentorship, that the mentee drives that relationship. So you need a supportive mentor, but you also have to recognize that we're all so busy. But when you set up the meeting, you set up the time, we show up. You have an agenda, you have an outline, we can plug in the holes and provide the support. So it's important for mentees to know that they really do drive that relationship and to take the initiative in that arena. Yeah, it's almost like, what can this person do for me? And if they can think of it that way, then you're going to be able to pull out what you want to do and what you need. I always think about that in terms of jobs and positions or things that now I quote volunteer or whatever I want to do is what what is this going to do for me? What How does it align with what I'm interested in and my values? And so 
I think that direction is important and that should empower the mentee for that initiative because we are looking for that. What are some of the goals of this scholarship? It can be short-term, long-term. Why is it important and what are the goals? So as a specialty, otolaryngology is not very diverse. If you look at papers that have come out overall, probably about 5% of our specialty has members that identify as underrepresented minorities and including, you know, Black or African-American, Hispanic and Native American. And so we really want to increase the exposure to that and provide experiences that allow individuals to see what our specialty is all about. I don't know how you came to otolaryngology. I stumbled on it completely. I didn't have any, you know, any issues as a child with respect to tonsils or ears. So I, I didn't even know that it existed. And I think that's a lot of what happens. We just don't know about the specialty and we want to promote it and we want to promote it early and allow these students to build relationships, to network. This generation, I don't know what generation we're presently in that's coming through the workforce <laughs> since like five of them, but they are savvy with their QR codes and their electronic yeah. business cards and their desire to network and giving folks the opportunity to go to a national meeting, present their work. So when they come into the application process, it's not foreign territory to them. So that really is the goal. I think from the one-year exposure, you don't have to have a PhD to do basic science research, but you do need to spend some time in that area and see if it is something you want to do. It sounds fun, right? You you listen to the papers and you look at the, oh, I did this this sexy mouse experiment, or I did this whole transcriptome analysis of you know, differential gene expression, you realize what it takes to actually get that data and produce it and reproduce it, it can be a challenge. And so understanding that early, if that's something that you like, we want you to have that experience. But most importantly, too, if it's not something that you like, you didn't spend 10 years trying to pursue something that ultimately you have no interest in doing. So that's the goal. The goal is to really broaden the exposure for our students, especially our underrepresented students, and to give them the opportunity to interface with all of our wonderful colleagues such that when they go to apply, we know it's a competitive application process, that they're armed with the tools they need to be successful and get the residency spot that they want. Yeah. And, uh, you know, being able to spend a year with a head neck mentor in the department, you're building professional relationships. And those relationships, whether it's time to apply for residency or 10, 15 years later down the road, they're so important in terms of professional foundation. It carries you, I think, whether, you know, in different ways professionally later on down the line too. Tell us about, you know, pipeline programs. And is this an example of a pipeline program? Yeah, I guess you could consider it. I feel like though pipeline or pathway programs have a little more longitudinal width to them, for lack of a better word. So I, I feel like the Eddie Mendez Award, because it is a one-year program, you have the opportunity to establish relationships, not just with the mentor in the lab or, you know, in the dry lab, because this is open, right? You could do computational biology, epidemiology. It's not wet. I want to make sure I stress that it is not wet to working in a wet laboratory, injecting mice or, or doing cell culture. And so I think that longitudinal program is going to allow you to interface with the faculty. These projects don't just end at the end of one year. They're going to be ongoing. So you'll be able to build those relationships like you're talking about. The student presently working with me 
oftentimes goes to the clinic with all of the faculty. So she might spend a day, you know, with a head and neck surgeon and the next day in otology or, or, you know, so once a week, we try to get her out of the lab to have a clinical experience. And then the opportunity to present your work nationally allows you to continue those networks. There's some other pathway or pipeline programs, I think, that are really designed from the beginning. So Nth Dimensions is probably the gold standard in terms of a longitudinal pathway pipeline program that really reaches back to high school. Those are the kind of programs where you're fostering somebody from high school through college and into medical school and into the next level. Those have been shown to be incredibly successful. So I would say this is kind of like a baby, a baby pipeline program. And then one that we hope over time, when we see how this goes and how folks respond, that we can expand it. We may find that one, the one-year research experience is not maybe what folks are looking for, and we can you know, make those adjustments accordingly. But we wanted to do a program that honored Dr. Mendez and his life's work, and that's why we started with this approach. Yeah. Talking about the Nth program and you know, having somewhere to at least start with, with the scholarship, is medical school too early or is it earlier enough for these opportunities to exist? I mean, I realize through the H&S... It's this amazing scholarship opportunity, and it's something great that a society on a national level has to offer to push the DEI envelope forward. But, you know, in terms of impact, is medical school early enough? So I am not familiar with the present numbers when it comes to medical school classes and what those demographics look like, other than I hear women now are more prevalent in the class than men. Uh, so I, I don't know the exact answer to that question. I think what's interesting, which I've learned in my role in the Cancer Center, are there are a lot of training and education programs that go from high school through college through medical school that provide unique training experiences. So that's so if you're listening and you're in school and you look at a university, most of their cancer centers will have a division called Cancer Research Education and Training. Now, mind you, this is oncology focused, but what you will see in a lot of those in those tabs on those websites are the programs for high school and undergraduate and medical students that are designed to give you an exposure. This, some of them in oncology, but some of them just in general, there are some post-baccalaureate programs. There's a bunch of opportunities that the NIH and other entities have recognized and sponsored that students need for the exposure early on. We hope to, through the Myers Traveling Fellowship in particular, because that one aims really as an MS1. I think for otolaryngology, you need to know a little bit earlier than later you want to pursue it so you can begin to put together that competitive application, which includes, of course, you know, we're looking at publications. I still feel like there are probably several programs that are looking at USMLE test scores. We're trying not to have that as a singular focus and to have a more holistic approach. But this really does allow an MS1 or, you know, after your MS1 year to try to get in early and build those connections that I think are needed to be a successful candidate. And how do you get medical students aware of an opportunity like this? How do you advertise it? So we will reach out to all of the deans. So we'll send an email that goes out to the dean of all of the medical schools that then gets filtered down to the appropriate channels. I actively participate in any of the local chapter of the SNMA. We'll have like roundtable discussions. And oftentimes that's where we'll come in and kind of introduce the specialty. 
There are some national meetings that folks will go to that the Student National Medical Association, the Latino National Medical Association to their meetings and just have a presence. We at Duke have a new vice chair. Every department is standing up a vice chair for equity, diversity, and inclusion. And within those strategic plans in our department will be efforts to kind of disseminate information and go to meetings to try to capture students early on and give them an exposure and a name and a face and, hey, this is who we are and this is what we believe in and these are the values and that we are putting forth in our department that are important to us. That's great. I wanted to take a step back and talk a little bit more about the actual setup of the scholarship. How did you guys set it up? Who did you need buy-in from in terms of getting the uh, h and uh, as a society to invest and commit for the scholarship? So the Myers family initiated the first one. So they came, they put in an, an incredible financial investment. And I think when you have pioneers and leaders in the field, that you look up to and respect and they say, hey, this is what's important to us as members of the otolaryngology community, that it's relatively easy to get some buy-in at that point. And so that really kind of spearheaded this effort and initiative. And when, and Dr. Mendez had made so many wonderful contributions that we wanted to honor him as a society and members, both, you know, AHNS members, otolaryngology members as a whole gave generously. And interesting, we had a little a gap toward the end. We really were pushing toward the end. And I think if you just kind of look around and ask, people may not be aware and they give freely. So I we had this gap and I put some money in and then I called my chairman and said, hey, we have a gap. <laughs> And so did my, uh, the chair of the committee, Dr. Gina Jefferson, did the same thing. So we just started calling our, our colleagues who helped fill that gap because I think everybody recognizes the importance and that these um, initiatives have been successful. I don't know offhand, I think we've had at least four Myers Fellows go through and now they're starting to get into their otolaryngology programs. And while one of them, I think, did not go into otolaryngology, ultimately went into neurosurgery. So, you know, but had that early exposure. And so we're going to be able to, in a little bit of time, show how this program has worked and how successful it has been. And then hopefully do a next round of recruiting for more dollars to invest in more students. That's great. Who do you need as active, consistent participants on the AHNS side? Having the donors is key. It's one part of it. But in terms of keeping the car moving to keep the wheels going. So the AHNS has made significant investment in, in women and in diversity. So we have the diversity service, which is sort of services, the word we use, but it's a committee, right? So making sure that that committee stays engaged and is also diverse in itself, right? So we are interested in having a diverse body to run that committee. We are the committee that reviews the applications. And so as members rotate off, I'll be rotating off at some point. Dr. Jefferson will be rotating off soon. We were part of that inaugural group that others continue to participate, as I'm sure they will. Our women's service is very active. And so the leaders have a seat at the table. And I think this is a lasting infrastructure. It's no longer like a temporary working group. You know, you go from being a working group to being com a committee. This is ingrained and entrenched now within the American Head Neck Society, which is run flawlessly by a dedicated team of professionals that keep the, you know, investments sound and so that the money is there 
And we have a good team that helps push out the social media, that helps make sure that the calls are going out, that the schools are aware, and the information being disseminated in a timely fashion. I think you made a really good point earlier on about the leadership of Dr. Myers. It's having good leadership that has the value, what they value, it transcends and it transcends over time. And so it's really wonderful that the HNS has now not just turned something like this into a working group, but that it's entrenched and it's a value as a society. Because I think on a national level, it's, it's so important. Tell me about some of the challenges that you guys have faced in setting it up and keeping it going, or maybe adjustments or changes you've had to make with little roadblocks that maybe had come along. You know, I think at first, trying to really understand who, who we wanted to benefit from these opportunities and how do you decide who is eligible. So we, you know, we don't have, we're not doing any sort of like DNA test or looking at your financial records to determine if you fit the criteria, right? If you, if this is who you identify as, we're reviewing your application. But there was a little bit of challenge in figuring out what are we calling under, you know, what are we defining as an underrepresented minority? What backgrounds are we including, not including? We review all the applications, quite frankly, and we don't have an exclusion criteria. And so I think one of the things that is a challenge, right, is everybody's time is compressed. We all volunteer for these opportunities to serve the H&S in this way and making sure that we have, you know, a diverse group of members that want to review the applications and give their time is really, I wouldn't say it's a challenge, but it's really important, right? And, and not taking for granted that you have the ability to affect somebody's life by providing this resource and taking the time to, and to be thoughtful in reviewing them. So that's probably the hardest thing, right? Like we're just all so busy and then you got 20 applications, which is great. We had the highest number ever for the Myers this year, which was awesome. So it's telling us that there's outreach, that people are hearing about the program. We know all these students have their platforms where they talk. So they're sharing that they're having a great experience. And so if the challenge is that 50 applications come in and we have to find five more people to add to help us review, well, then that's a welcome challenge. Yeah. Well, and maybe as the numbers go up in applications, more spots, there's more money, there's more scholarships, and there's even more exposure, right? Which is pretty cool. Tamara, are there any downsides to programs like this? I ask because of, you know, the broader different political backdrops and state legislations specific to, for example, in Texas, Florida, state legislations that are banning a lot of state-sponsored DEI programs. And so I just wanted to know sort of what your thoughts are on any downsides or how do we handle some of these legislations for those of us who are from states or we're practicing or are practicing in state-sponsored uh, university settings that now have to deal with this huge conundrum, this huge ban, and, you know, how do we reset? I don't think that there's any downside to having a program that really seeks to support individuals historically that have had challenges in just trying to get their foot through the door. So at the end of the day, we all take the same tests and we all have to have a same level of competency for patient care. And I have not met a student from a different background, however we want to define that, that has come through otolaryngology that didn't meet those metrics 
and those that don't, regardless of their skin color and gender, we have to help find maybe a program that is more suitable for them. And so I don't think that there's any any downside. I worry about what's to come. I think we have a patient population that is diverse and we need diversity of thought. When you look at the National Institutes of Health, they're instituting new components to their research plans called the plan to enhance diverse perspectives, where you as a scientist are now going to have to generate how I'm going to do this body of work and how is it going to translate not to just one population, but to everyone? And if it's not, okay, how are we going to mitigate for that? Recruitment of clinical trials for those drugs to be successful requires that we have diverse patients enrolled in those clinical trials and having a workforce that mirrors the patient population that we all serve would be ideal. We're not going to get there in my lifetime, but would be ideal. And what I guess the question I would ask somebody who maybe is not in favor of these programs, why is it that we can't have a workforce that mirrors our catchment area or the patients that we serve? Why why can't we achieve that? And then how are we going to do that in an equitable manner? Yeah. The ACGME, I mean, the vision is when the workforce mirrors our patients, the outcomes are better. And so when I think about the different changes that are coming to different states and where and why I think EDI is so important, I realize that, you know, it's really going to come to our societies, our accreditation program bodies, our boards to push the envelope on this. And so when we do have the HNS saying, listen, we have a scholarship specific to recruit and to provide exposure to our underrepresented minority medical students. This is important. Here's why. And this is where they go. And this is how it helps the overall healthcare system, the workforce, patient outcomes. I think, you know, we need more of that on a national level so that we have leaders at the national stage telling us, hey, this is important when it comes to recruitment. It's important when it comes to medical education. It's important when it comes to research. It's important when it comes to patient care and overall health outcomes. And so I'm hoping that we see more and more within otolaryngology when it comes to programs outreach scholarships to bring in more students from different backgrounds and to provide that perspective. So when Dr. Jefferson and when you when y'all reached out like, hey, let's do a podcast on this topic, one, it really was exciting because it highlights a great opportunity within ENT and within the head neck community. But it also shines such a, a bigger light on the discussion of why is it why is it important and uh, where are we going as a as a field within otolaryngology, but also also medicine. Any other final thoughts or pearls? I just think that it's vital for our trainees to have colleagues that don't all look like each other. Our residents had a big push for it. There, there's just so much you can learn from somebody else's unique individual experience. And you can only do that if you have a group of people that have different and unique experiences. And some of that stems from their gender and racial and ethnic identities. And we can't just discount that. It's important. And it helps us be better doctors. It helps us recognize things in our patients that maybe we might overlook because we just haven't had this exposure or this experience. And it is a way for us to do 
what I think we all promised or vowed when we graduated from residency, right? Which was to do no harm. And you can do harm by not understanding some of the perspectives by which your patients come to see you. And then this is a way and an important way to care for those that we have spent our lives training and being in school to care for. And so let's not squander the opportunity. Let's embrace and move forward despite what the Supreme Court and others feel. Because we know, especially in our specialty, I just think we're a unique group of individuals, just so collaborative and want, and you know, our patients, oh, especially on the head and neck cancer side, what they go through requires a team and having a team that's diverse in all walks of life, just, it's just better for patients and it's better for patient outcomes. And if you're a scientist, you can read the papers and see the papers that show you that. And if you're into best practice and evidence-based medicine, well, we can provide you the evidence for that. So that's what you need to move the needle forward and do what's right. Well, thank you so much, Tamara. Thank you for your time. Are you on any social media? If I ask in case any of our listeners want to reach out to you or learn more about the scholarship. Yes. So my Instagram is lone.star.life because um, I was a Texan <laughs> for like for nine years. And um, I don't use Twitter that much, but I'm at Tamara Watts on Twitter. I guess it's not Twitter anymore. It's X. But yeah, you can find me on the Duke website and email me. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Thank you for coming by. I think it's a wrap. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Orvijinski. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.